Uh, can we just start over? No, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, uh, you reacted to that joke like the students do. You know, you pass out the final exam and say, hey, I hope you guys do well. And all I can say is I took it twice. I made 103 both times. So it's not fair. I get that. But Okay, so, uh, well, um, I've noticed CNN lately has been saying some really derogatory things about the psychological makeup of a pretty famous person. And uh, some of this may be kind of fake news. But to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, I want to deal with this head on. Uh, they've been saying a lot of nasty things about Santa Claus lately. And uh, so we're going to talk about top three things, or top three signs, I should say, Santa Claus is totally stressed out. Number three, last week he posted an angry rant on his Facebook page roasting the work of the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. He's just in a bad mood. You know, I didn't say these were real funny. I'm just saying they're going to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. Just yesterday, he got mad and fired his brightest reindeer, Rudolph, and his tallest elf, Ron Miller. <laughs> and uh, in just nine days, he's moving to Tulsa to pursue his dream of becoming a male swimsuit model. You know what? That's a big mistake. That's a, I got the wrong top three list there. That's actually one of the top three signs that I am stressed out. Um, Carol, if you want to do a commercial, please do. Um, uh, from two to four today, you can kind of look at some of the the best pictures. And trust me, we took thousands of them. i give you a feel for Israel. If you've been over there, I think you'll enjoy seeing those. If you haven't been over there, uh, I think you'll enjoy seeing them anyway. Uh, and also, Carol has produced an incredible calendar. And I don't, I get 10% of the proceeds too, but, uh, uh, for 2020, you've seen it, haven't you, Olga? Have you seen the, pic- cam- the calendar yet? Really some great pictures and really a wonderful calendar. So, and it's going to go to link one, I think, the proceeds. Is that right? So it goes to a good cause. So come, come check it out. Uh, if you're on the tour this time, you're cordially invited to come and maybe, uh, interact with with the thousands of people who are going to come and look at the pictures but uh, I know Ken and Carol will be there I'll be there and so uh, don't forget that if you want to come let's talk about the history of Christmas Tommy and I want to warn you don't use Christmas cards as Bible commentaries because they're not always correct as we'll show you in a minute but yeah let's talk about one real meaning the two biblical passages that relate directly to Christmas and then three key names or titles for Christ that uh, make sense in light of Christmas. And let's think first about the real meaning of Christmas. I say this every year, but in the old days, I remember all the major celebrities, Dean Martin, Andy Williams, Lawrence Welk, would have their annual Christmas show. And somewhere toward the end of the Christmas show of Sydney, Lawrence Welk, the great theologian from South Dakota, or Andy Williams from Palm Springs, California, or Dean, Dean Martin from Reno, Nevada, they would say, hey, just remember, they'd look at the screen, and they have, they'd practiced this enough they could fake sincerity, and they'd say, don't forget the real meaning of Christmas. And you're thinking, what's it going to be? And it'd be some general bromide, which is a nice thought, uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's related, that's related to Christmas. But that's not the real, real meaning of Christmas. That's a spinoff from the real, real meaning of Christmas. Or it's more blessed giver to receive, or Christmas is for the children. I saw Burl Ives, you know, holly jolly Christmas guy, actor, 
um, who uh, said once on live nationwide TV that uh, the real meaning of Christmas is Christmas is for the children. And it's a little bit like Richard Nixon after uh, the moon landing said, this is the greatest event in the history of mankind. And I said, it may be the greatest engineering feat in the history of mankind, but I think God walking on the earth was more important than man walking on the moon. But I'm a, I'm a theologian, so that's all I can say. So, Tommy, this is what you want to take home as the real, real meaning of Christmas. I'm picking on Tommy for some reason. Now, you guys are usually over there. Like, <laughs> if you're looking for the current pastor's good side, he doesn't have one. I mean, maybe from the rear might be the best. But the the real, real meaning of Christmas is the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. That's what it means. That's the meaning. Everything else spins off of that. And you're looking at John 1.14. And we read in the Gospel of John 1.14. We read this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, and that's the apostolic we, that's John writing as an apostle, as an eyewitness, saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now what does that mean? Because, hey, Phyllis, when I picked up the Gospel of John as a little kid, they were selling these paper uh, uh, translations, uh, transliterations of the Bible at the grocery store when I grew up, after I became a Christian, Tim as a young kid, and I taught my mom to buy this transliteration or um, transliteration is not what I want. What do I want? A paraphrase. It's a paraphrase. And I, I, I said, and I, my teachers had said, read the Gospel of John. So I opened up the Gospel of John. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And I said, I know what the Word means. That's the Bible. In the beginning was the Bible. And the Bible was with God. And the Bible was, was God. I said, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to have to you know, think of something else. But yeah, this title, the Word, Halagos here, is a reference to Jesus. So the Word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh dwelt among us. The apostles saw his life, death, and his resurrection, and he's the exclusive issue and issue of eternal life. For some context, go back to chapter 1, verse 1 of John. In the beginning, that is, in the beginning was, in the beginning before the beginning was, you could say, in the beginning already was the Word. That's the title for Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And the Word, a title for Jesus, was with God the Father. Uh, we've been talking about the deity of Christ on Wednesday nights. The deity of Christ is the doctrine that Jesus is God. But he's not God the Father. And he's not God the Holy Spirit. He's a separate person. One God with three uh, persons. One what? Three who's. In the beginning, the word already was. Because he's transcendent. He's eternal. Second person of Trinity. And he was with God the Father. And he himself, the word, Jesus, was full deity. And so, you know, this is a diagram that I think is helpful in that regard. And you've got the eternal trinity here. The Son is God, but he's not the Father, nor is he the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and the Spirit is a he, not an it. But he's not the Son, nor the Father. And the Father is God, is deity, but the Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. It's the second person of the Trinity who's the unique member of the Trinity who becomes visible, who takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity. The incarnation doesn't mean he, it, people say God became man, and it sounds like we're saying the Bible's teaching God morphed into a man and then morphed back into God. That's not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. We don't believe God became man. We believe God took on humanity 
without ceasing to be deity. So you have one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. And that happens in the virgin conception and then results nine months later in the virgin birth. So that's the real, real meaning of Christmas. The babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. I can't reproduce that in the laboratory for you. It's a miracle. I have no idea how you do that, but that's the teaching and that's what happened. Now let's focus this morning on the two major passages of Christmas. We've got one real, real meaning, right? We've got two biblical passages, and they are Luke 2 and Matthew 2 in that order. Sometimes, Tim, I think people think, well, Matthew goes first because Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you've got Mark, Matthew 2 and Luke 2, since Luke's the third book, you've got to always read whatever's in Matthew 2 first before Luke. Not true at all. They're not in chronological order in that sense at all. And that's job security for people like me because we can kind of point that out to you. But, yeah, this is important. This is a simplistic uh, schematic summary of what Luke 2 is dealing with. Luke 2 is dealing with the night of the birth. The actual Christmas event is described in Luke 2. Matthew 2 takes place after the birth, and maybe as much as 18 months later. We'll show you how we know that. But if you look at your notes, we've got that breakdown that uh, kind of compares in columns Matthew 1, 1 through 2.23 on the left side of that page. Luke 1, 5 through 2.40 on the right side of the page. And what you've got is in Matthew, Matthew is the gospel, Dustin, that's showing you that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And the surprise ending of that gospel is the fact the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the whole world. Everybody who believes, okay? And in order for Jesus to qualify as Messiah, the first thing you've got to establish is that he has the right gene- genealogy. Because the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah, Sue, would be a human being, not an alien or an angel, a male, not a female, a descendant of Seth, uh, to Noah, uh, to Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of David, right? You've got to establish that. So notice, you look at Matthew 1, not a Christmas passage, but it prepares you for Christmas. Look at Matthew chapter 1. This is important, and I've said this a couple of times, but you surprised uh, some people that are well-regarded in evangelicalism never pull this out or, or point this out to people. Uh, why do you start with the genealogy with the gospel? Nobody reads genealogies in the 21st century. Well, you should. It's a fast-forward to show you how you get from Abraham to the Messiah, as promised, and you get all these names, but... He sums it up in verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Savior. They all mean the same thing. The son, not the little boy of, but the great, 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 great grandson physically of David, who was the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham. And those guys are major in the Old Testament. They're promised that through their loins, through their line, the Messiah is going to come. Um, these names are familiar. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was father of Jacob. Jacob's father of the twelve, including Judah and his brothers. And it goes on from there. Uh, drop down to uh, verse 5. Salmon, which is not the fish you eat, but was a, a guy's name, was the father of Boaz. That should sound familiar. By Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. 
by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, King David, right? So he's establishing the fact Jesus qualifies, and through David comes Solomon, and then Rehoboam, and the line goes on. But drop down to verse 15. This Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, not Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a later one. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the carpenter, the husband of Mary, by whom? Now, by whom in English is generic. It can be a reference to a man, a woman, uh, or even used collectively. But in the New Testament Greek, this is one reason you learn these little things, by whom, that whom is the feminine singular personal pronoun. And it jumps out at you in the Greek text. It doesn't do it in English because English is a fuzzy language in that area. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the legal husband of Mary, but not the father of Jesus. He was conceived supernaturally, virgin conception, virgin birth. Husband of Mary, by whom Mary, it's the feminine pronoun there, Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. So that's really, really important. But back to that little arrangement, that display of Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, which you have there in your notes. Um, in Luke 1, 5 through 25, the angel Gabriel appears to a priest by the name of Zacharias in Jerusalem and says, you and your wife are old now, you're too old to naturally have children, but you're going to conceive in the good old-fashioned fun way a child when it's really too late for that to happen for you guys. And he's going to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist, right? He was a Jewish prophet. Because Malachi and Isaiah said there'd be a special prophet who would be a contemporaneous with and prepare the way for the Messiah. So we're getting everything established here that everything's right on schedule. Uh, that's Luke 1, 5 through 25. Luke 1, 26 through 38. Several months after Gabriel tells Zacharias the priest that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son in their old age, Gabriel, the same angel, comes to Mary in Nazareth about 80 miles north of Jerusalem and announces she's going to become pregnant supernaturally. She's, she's engaged to get married, and this is going to cause complications in her plans because nobody's going to believe this thing. But through this supernatural virgin conception resulting in a virgin birth nine months later, the Messiah is going to come into the world as the God-man. And she's told, name him Yeshua, which means God's Savior. Okay. Now, she's told, uh, he, she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. It's a question that would obviously come to mind. It's an honest question. And the angel says, hey, as a sign, your older Elizabeth, a relative Elizabeth, who's too old to have a baby, she's pregnant in her old age, super normally. And so Mary goes down, travels uh, 80 miles, 90 miles, visits her, Elizabeth, her relative Elizabeth near Jerusalem, who's then six months pregnant with John. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, stays till just before John's baptized, just before John's baptized, just before John is born, about three months. And then he goes, she goes back home, and guess what? In Luke 1, 56, can't, uh, Tim, uh, Mary comes back to Nazareth after being out of town for months, and she's visibly pregnant. Not good. That's where Matthew picks up the story. Mary's found to be pregnant after being out of town for several months. Joseph assumes the obvious. The people in the Bible were so dumb 
They were so gullible. They just thought miracles explained everything. Not this time. He assumed the obvious, broke his heart, but he's going to, and this took a legal proceeding to break the engagement. He's going to do it quietly, not demand she be stoned or anything like that under the law. Uh, but an angel, we're not told it's Gabriel, but it probably was, tells Joseph, Mary is pregnant as a result of a supernatural conception. He should go ahead and legally marry her, but not consummate the marriage legally, or physically, I should say, until the baby is born. And be sure you name him, what? Jesus, which means God's Savior, right? Now you come to Luke 2, night of the birth, with all that in Matthew 2, and Luke 2 is your background. Now, the Christmas passage is Luke 2. Joseph and Mary, who live in the north part of Israel, have had to travel south. Why is that important? Why is it important Jesus be born in Bethlehem? Old Testament prophecy, right? Micah 5, 2. And also, Bethlehem means house of bread, which is kind of helpful. That's where David was born. But, Dustin, nothing important has happened in Bethlehem for a thousand years. After David was born there, nothing big had happened there. So, they travel south for the Roman tax census to go back to their kindred community, you might say. Can I say that, Jen? Um, and while they're, and she's nine months pregnant, while she's there, she gives birth in a stable. You wouldn't make that up. And immediately, angels go to the shepherds down the road to tell them in the little town the Messiah has been born. And then the story goes on from there. But if you pick it up with Matthew chapter 2, now, Lana, how in the heck are we supposed to know that Matthew 2 happens after Luke 2? Well, go to, Matthew, go to Luke 2. I'll show you. And, of course, you have to really be a trained theologian to see things like this because it's very, very difficult. Medicaid, I, I've been, uh, I took two doses of NyQuil, one at 4.30 this morning and one at 6.30 this morning. I'm, I'm not sure my sensitive constitution <laughs> is uh, handling it very well. I, t- I took DayQuil. Did I say NyQuil? No, I took, I'm not that dumb. I'm, I took DayQuil, okay? Because that stuff will put you to sleep, man. Which explains kind of some of the things I see some Sunday mornings, probably. But. Now watch this, Lane. I, I lost my, my punchline because I'm telling you, Luke is talking about the night of the birth. And Matthew tells you about stuff that happens later, like maybe a year later, maybe even 18 months later. How are we going to know that? Well, Matthew assumes you already know about the Christmas event. So he just says, after, you see that in your Bible? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem. After Jesus had been born, and it turns out with Herod wanting to kill the babies two years and under, I don't doubt, Sidney, he wanted to do a little overkill, but I don't think he's doing that much overkill. I don't, if this was two weeks later, I'm not, I don't think there'd be a necessity for anyone to kill the babies two years and older. I mean, he was a bad dude. I think it's probably a year later, maybe even a little bit more than that. So he wants to make sure. So he does a little overkill, but not that much. And again, I'm reading that into this. You know, if in heaven we find out this was two weeks later, fine. But I'm telling you for sure, the shepherds did not see the wise men and vice versa around the manger. Because in Matthew, we're told they're living in a house at this point. They're not in a, in a stable, so it couldn't be, be the same thing. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, then these magi come. And we'll talk about them more in a minute. So let's uh, let's go to Bethlehem for for a few moments, and then we'll uh, look at some more details in the passage. Uh, yeah, the word Bethlehem, uh, Bet means house, and Lehem means bread in Hebrew. So Bethlehem is house of bread. It's important because David was born there, 
And because Micah 5.2 in 700 B.C. predicted the Messiah was going to be born right there. Okay, They put it on a map. It's a real place. Homer's been there. Pam's been there. Uh, Ken Wander's been there. Um, in fact, their daughter-in-law's mother stayed there three nights. Am I right? Yeah, we stayed on the Dead Sea. We got to, we, we had, and in Jerusalem, but they stayed in Bethlehem for three nights. Uh, when you take tours with me, I promise we'll not spend the night in Bethlehem. We'll go to Bethlehem, but we'll spend the night. Uh, you know, it's not like the rolling hills of Oklahoma where it's as green as, uh, after a good rain, it's really green everywhere. It's, it's rocky, but there's enough grass there for parts of the year. And it really, uh, in that one section, they have grass essentially year round is good. Those are recent pictures. But let's go to the Church of the Nativity. I think that was one of David's pictures. Did you take that picture of the sign? Does that look familiar? It really is. These are real places, real people, real events. Now, this is that aerial shot that Homer took back in 06. He's nice enough to hang off the bottom of the helicopter and take a picture of this. But look, this is Nativity Square where you see CNN every year where they celebrate Christmas. But this is the Church of the Nativity. What's it shaped like, the roof line? Shaped like a, a cross. And this year we went in there and we actually went in this courthouse, a courtyard, it's not courthouse, here and went down, if you guys remember some steps and looked at some other things, uh, which most tourists don't get to see. But this is a shot from uh, the tour in May where we are looking at the front of the Church of the Nativity in, in the middle of the square there, right? And uh, I think I took this picture. David may have taken it, but I usually take the backs of people's heads just because I'm really good at discerning that. There's there's the back of Ron's head. There's the back of <laughs> uh, Alan Duell's head. There's the back of Elisa Duell's head. There's the back of Stephanie's head. There's the ba- back of Beth Brennan's head. Is this interesting? We can go on. <laughs> That's Rachel Dudley's head. That's Kyleen's um uh, Niece-in-law's head, back of Michelle. Michelle. Yeah, that's really us. That's uh, that's Gina and her sister Laura. Gina um, Flesher. Yeah. So I just real places, real people, real events, right? Okay, we got some faces here. Sorry about that. I made a mistake. Uh, those are the Stringers from Norman or Edmund or wherever they're from. They came with us. There's Steve Bowers. There's our Palestinian guide. Homer and Pam, you know they pass us off, right? They don't let Jewish guides in Bethlehem. He's a very nice guy. <coughs> Excuse me. And there's the sisters. They got to come. Yeah. Yeah. Ramses. Might have been Dale. But you know what? Yeah, I mentioned this about, you know, uh, the, the Muslims always try to rain on our parade. If you're standing in, and at one level they got a right to do this, but Golgotha is especially bad what they did with that. But if you look at, if you're standing in that nativity square and you do an about face, you're looking at the church and you're doing an about face, what do you see directly across the street from it? Yeah, minaret, which means you're looking at a mosque. So again, they control the area. They got a right to do that. I'm not objecting to that, but that's just what they do. They always put their stuff as close to us as possible. Now, want to go way, way back in time, Ron? This was 2006. That this was not Ron's first rodeo back uh, in May. He's been. He and Julie have been to Bethlehem. That's inside the church 
of the nativity. It's, it's real gaudy, and the Roman Catholics control some of it, and the Greek Orthodox, Orthodox control some of it, and another small group controls other parts of it. Uh, this is our group uh, in that courtyard. After you go through the building, go out to the right. And I think you can see there's Carla, there's Susie, there's uh, Anthony. There's, hey, Danny Noga, got the back of your heads there. That's a, that's a good look, isn't it? Real places. Uh, and adjacent to that is the Shepherd's Field, which has a very nice small dome, like chapel, with great acoustics. And I want you to see something here. You can get your theology from paintings in the uh, church next to the church nativity because you got Mary, the baby Jesus, and Joseph, and shepherds. There are no wise men here. The wise men come later, right? So they got that right. Good job. And that's not a photograph, by the way. That's an artist representation, right? Okay, I got the front of your heads this time, Danny. You know, whoever took this picture. I don't think I took this picture necessarily. There's Ashley. There's Janine, there's Danny Noga. There's just some straight tourist who's trying to listen to Dale sing, I think. Because Dale was leading us in song. We had great, great acoustics there. Now, what we didn't do in this past trip was go down um, into the basement of the church itself to see, quote-unquote, where Jesus was born. Uh, you've got authentic sites like the steps in the temple, like Caiaphas's house. And you've got traditional sites that were determined in 325 after the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in 313. He sent his mother to the Holy Land in 325, uh, uh, Queen Helena, to, dis- to find out where everything happened. Now, that's Jesus was crucified in 33, was born in about 5 BC. So Helena's there more than 300 years later with money in hand and saying, hey, you live in Bethlehem, can you show me where Jesus was born 300 years ago? I'll give you this money. And they said, yeah, right next to my house here. You know, So we're not sure exactly where the manger was, but uh, if you want to get to where they say it was, and that's the back of my head, and that can't be me. i got it much better. Uh, i got a much smaller bald spot than that. <laughs> that really is me. Going downstairs, there it is. It's amazing. He was born... On a slab of marble with a silver star. It was amazing, you know. Now, you know, people did that in good faith in 325, but it's very doubtful that was the exact spot. We know it happened somewhere in Bethlehem, very near to there, but not necessarily that exact spot. But they've marked it with the best of intentions, and God bless them. And there's Jonathan and Candace. They don't look like that anymore. They've got two twins, two sets of twins, and they have aged excessively. You'll see them next week. Uh... They're all stooped over and in a bad mood and stuff like that. You know, they don't get a lot of sleep. Now we talk about a way in a manger. Can you see the manger in that picture? This was the very manger. No, it wasn't the very manger, but it was, was kind of like this. Yeah, it's a cattle trough. The word just means cattle trough. So that that's a picture of a cattle trough. That's an artist's representation. And there's there's the manger. Okay. So let's hit a couple of high points in the Luke and Matthew Christmas passages. So go back to Luke 2. And um, let's just say a few words about that while we're here. One real, real meaning, two biblical passages, Luke 2 and Matthew 2. Now in those days, the days shortly after John the Baptist was born, we saw the two pregnancies and two moms getting together. Now John the Baptist has been born 
in those days, a few months after this, a decree had, had gone out from Caesar Augustus, uh, Octavian, but they, he changed his name to Augustus, his title, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, that's the way the Romans referred to their empire. And so Luke kind of tongue-in-cheek is saying that's the way they refer to it. Like you talk about the rep- the honorable ex-congressman who's not honorable at all. You know, he's been done all kinds of horrible things. But it's just kind of the way we talk. So he's kind of tongue-in-cheek saying the Romans actually think they control everything, but they don't. We know God does. So it's just you, it's a little bit of cynicism there. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, uh, there's actually a historical issue there. And uh, some, if you take that word prote as while, you have to assume there was a second time where Quirinius, the same guy, was governor again. But as Harold Honer, the guy from Cambridge University, uh, points out, and as Bauer Arden Gingrich and their uh, Mexican point out, the first meaning for prote in this kind of context is before. If you just translate the word the way it means, it, you don't have a historical problem anymore. So this was the first census taken before Corinthians was the governor. That would have been meaningful to the first century readers, not as much to us, but it, it all lines up now. And everyone was to go to his his uh, genealogical family center, his kindred community, to sign up for this Roman tax uh, census. So Joseph went up from Galilee, the northern region, the city of Nazareth, where he's just been clued in that his wife is pregnant supernaturally, and he just happens to be the Messiah, and we're going to name him Jesus, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of uh, David. Uh, Drop down to verse 6. While they were there, uh, she's going to give birth. So she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in an inn. So he's, he's laying in a cattle trough wrapped up like a dead man. And that's going to be important because when the angel tells the shepherds who are maybe half a mile away watching the flocks, go worship the Messiah. How are we going to find the Messiah? He'll be the only baby in this small town wrapped up like a dead man lying in a cattle trough tonight, you know. And so that's just a good rule of thumb. Uh, For me, you know, you can learn all these sophisticated arguments to help uh, deal with uh, skeptics and agnostics and atheists. And I, I know some of those, and in some cases they're helpful. But my rule of thumb is if Somebody uh, lives a perfect life, uh, claims to be the Messiah, predicts his death and resurrection, and then actually rises from the dead. Whatever he says about eternal life, I'm basically going to go with. I mean, that's just me, okay? So that's how simple my faith is, right? But uh, God kind of confirms stuff, right? So this baby's wrapped up like a dead man, lying in a cattle trough. You wouldn't make this up, Dustin. If you're writing this later, Matthew's probably written pretty early, 45, 50 A.D., but a couple of decades later, if you're making it up anyway, have him in a, you know, diamond-encrusted bassinet. You know, if you're making stuff up, put him in a cattle trough. The Jewish Messiah saved the world, you wouldn't make it up. In the same region, that same night, the night of the birth, the first Christmas, there were shepherds in the fields watching over their flock by night. Shepherds were seen like garbage men, unfortunately, are seen in our culture like that's kind of the, a low level of blue collar work. They're not sophisticated. They're not really looked up to, admired. You got to have them. And I personally admire the, that's, that's not an easy job myself. I don't want to do it. But, uh, yeah, you, you wouldn't make that up. You'd have other people. And of course, Matthew's going to have, uh, big shots from Babylon come, but this is what happens the night of the birth. And an angel of the Lord came to those shepherds, interrupts them on their midnight shift, as it were, and the angel, 
uh, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And I like the King James there, Tommy. It says they were sore, afraid, which means scared out of their wits. Angels are not these little babies with little wings like in the Rembrandt paintings, you know, in the background. They are God's linebackers. They're tougher looking than, than Dustin, and you don't want to get him mad at you. It's a good thing he's a gentle giant, right? I think me, Ken, Mike, Steve, and a small army could probably take him. I'm just telling you. But, uh, yeah, so they're, they're scared spitless. But the angel, angels always immediately reassure believers. We're on the same team here, you know, and we're just all helpers anyway. So stop being afraid because I've got good news for you. Great joy is going to be for everybody, not just for the Jews. For today in the city of David, Bethlehem, they're looking down at it, actually looking up at it. Uh, there's been born for you a Savior who's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. It'll be the only baby in town, maybe the only infant born that night anyway, but he'll be the only infant wrapped up like a dead man lying in a cow trough. And suddenly a bunch of angels appear and they sing. And look what happens in verse 15. When the angels had gone away from these shepherds, these working guys, what's their reaction? Let's go straight. Let's leave somebody, a couple of guys watching the sheep, but let's go immediately into Bethlehem and see what's going on here. Now, when the Magi come to Jerusalem a year later, and Herod says, uh, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? It's not Jerusalem. It's somewhere else in the Old Testament, right? And he says, hey, Micah 5-2 is Bethlehem. Uh, none of those big shots want to go. And Herod doesn't want to go. But Herod says, hey, when you find, go, go to Bethlehem and find him. And when you find him, tell me where he is so I can worship him too. But none of the big shots, the religious leaders who knew the Hebrew Bible backward and forward, knew the prophecy... None of them want to take the six-mile trip all downhill all the way to Bethlehem. But these shepherds who've got to organize their work here, they go straight to Bethlehem. And sure enough, they came in a hurry. They found their way to Mary, Joseph, baby lying in a manger in a cattle trough. And they're excited. And they let the, the parents know what went on. And Mary treasured all those things in her heart. She's a deep thinker. And then the shepherds went back to work. They didn't just stay on a mountain waiting for the rapture, glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen. That's the night of the birth. Go to Matthew 2. This is going to be sometime after the birth. Uh, it's pretty common to say as much as a year or more later, and I'm saying a year or maybe 18 months later. We'll find out in the future. It doesn't matter, but don't put them in the same place, even though your Christmas cards may have them. Uh, there's a very impressive display of uh, the nativity, a crash, you might call it, life-size, within a couple miles of here. They got the whole gang there on the same night. Never happened. Uh, in the old days, long before I thought I was going to retire, they, they put a, the first year they did an activity scene that when I was here, up here, with everybody there, the Magi and the shepherds, and to make a point, I grabbed the Magi in the middle of a message, and of course, they came from the east, the Magi. So I walked straight east, put it on the uh, sound system, and I said, the Magi are over there when this is happening. They don't even know they're coming yet, right? So, but they I guess you guys got tired of me doing that to your display. So the decorating committee decided no more. You know. Okay, you Matthew 2. Now after, okay, prepositions are the key to Bible study. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and based on uh, Herod's assumption he's got to kill him to and under, which is a horrific thought, I bet it's a year later or 18 months later, uh, in the days of Herod the king, magi, these are not, Babylonian astrologers. There's no motive for Babylonian pagan astrologers to come to find Jesus Messiah. These are astronomers 
who have several books of the Bible for sure. Daniel, for sure, right? Uh, Ezekiel, those books were written in Babylon. And they probably have most of the Old Testament, if not all of it. They're, they're Jew, Gentile believers in the coming Messiah. They want to go find him. Where, and they go to Jerusalem, but they don't have Micah 5 2 or they haven't read it or understood it because they're looking for the King of the Jews, the Messiah. So if I'm looking for Donald Trump and I'm from Bangladesh, what city would I probably start? And I have no other information. Am I going to go to Seattle? Am I going to go to Marlowe? Where am I going to go? Washington, D.C. So these guys are from way out of town. They know the Messiah has been born. They know he's going to be the king of the Jews. So they go to the capital city. And uh, Herod, who's paranoid anyway, uh, you learn that when you go visit all of his hideouts he had, including Masada, that he never actually visited. Uh, but money's no expense, right? So Herod's freaking out, and everybody else is going to disturb the the, uh, the status quo. And Herod knows it's in the Bible somewhere in the Old Testament, but he doesn't know where. So he has his religious leaders, the chief priests and scribes, and he acquired, inquired from them, verse 4, uh, what does it say in the Old Testament? The Messiah's going to be born. Let's figure this thing out, help these guys so we can kill the baby. And they said, it's Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem. Verse 6 quotes Micah 5.2. Then secret Herod secretly called the Magi, just had a little uh, confidential private meeting, and said, when did you see that thing in the sky, that star? Now, the word star in Greek, aster, means anything bright in the sky. And you know, there are several people that want to say is a some kind of natural, unusual but natural thing where all the planets lined up or a couple of stars lined up and this kind of thing. And these are supernova. And these things happen from time to time. But they don't appear, disappear, and lead you to places. I don't buy those natural explanations. I think this is just like the, the children of Israel were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is that kind of thing. This is the Shekinah glory of God which is a movable point, and they saw it when they were in Babylon in places that shouldn't be in the sky, and they kind of connected some dots, some prophecies and, and numbers and other places, and probably got some angelic input. So they're looking for the Messiah, and they told Herod, well, when this thing appeared, then God let, let, let us know that the Messiah had been born. It probably took them six months to do get ready for the trip, and it's probably a year later, because it was a long trip, actually, for them. But anyway, Herod says, okay, now when did you first... Get the indication the Messiah had been born a year ago, 18 months ago, whatever it was. And so he sends them. This is important. Verse 8. I say this every year. So Herod, the wise, the chief priests and the scribes, they got other stuff to do. They're not going to go check out the Messiah. They don't, they don't care. He's just going to get in the way. But uh, he, Herod, sends the wise men, the Magi, to Bethlehem, six miles downhill all the way. Go and search carefully for the child. And that's the, a different word than for infant. It's for a baby is a year or two old. So that tells you some more stuff. And when you found him, report it to me so I may come and worship him too. Are there lies in the Bible? Huh? Yeah, inherently recorded lies. Was that a lie? Was Herod wanting to know where Jesus was so he could worship him? But is that what he said? Yeah, that's what he said. Okay. So yeah, be beware of that. So after the hearing of the king, they start their way to Bethlehem, and then this point light, this aster, this pillar of fire, appears again, like they'd seen it in Babylon, and it takes them not just to Babylon, but to the house. Look what it says. Uh, hearing the king, they went their way, they're heading toward Babylon, the star reappears. Verse 10, when they saw the aster, the point of light, they were excited about it, 
filled with joy. In verse 11, coming into the house. Now hold it. The night of the birth, Connie, Jesus was in a stable with a manger. You don't have mangers inside of houses very often, right? So this is a whole different. Where'd they get a house? We got a house for sale just a couple miles from here. So, you know, we'd rent, maybe rent it to them. What did Joseph do for a living exactly? If necessary, how could he stay for a year and get a house? They may have rented one. They may have built one, right? That's what his, what he did, right? So they come into a house and they worshiped him. Who are you supposed to worship only, according to the Bible? That baby is the God-man infant, the God-man human being. And they recognize that. These are not pagan astrologers. That's kind of the party line now. Everybody wants to say they are very bright, but believing Babylonian astronomers and theologians. Okay, let's look at the three key titles for Christ that are so associated with Christmas and important 24, 7, 365. Let's start with the name Jesus, Yeshua. Mary and Joseph were both told to call the baby Yeshua, which relates to the Hebrew word that means God's Savior. That's what the word means. But it's his human name. So because it's a human name, it emphasizes humanity. But the meaning of the word means God's Savior. The word Lord there is... Uh, Kurios in the New Testament Greek is the equivalent to Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the word for God translated with all capital letters. That's the salvation, personal name, the God of the covenant, the God, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. He's the God of salvation. So his title, Lord, means he's God. His name means he's the God's savior, but he's a human with a human name. And what does Christ mean? Literally means anointed one, means savior. And what do we know that the Old Testament taught primarily, overall? It taught that everybody sins, everybody dies, but the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One is coming. Jesus is the Christ. That's what the whole point of the New Testament is. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that was promised, and he's coming back. So, when you think about the history of Christmas, beware of using Christmas cards as commentaries. And even beware of large, expensive crushes. Okay, I found this last night on the fly. In fact, I found this this morning at 4.30 when I woke up and had to take some day quill and couldn't get back to sleep. Uh, this was Gifts with Love, as of like literally 4.45 this morning. Uh, it's a little pricey, but it's a lot less expensive than it was last week, I guess. I mean, it got it slashed. But I don't like this picture because... I'm trying to teach you to think biblically, and that's that's a bad picture, okay? Uh, why do I not like that picture? What does Luke 2 tell us about the scene? Who's there? Baby Jesus there? Mary there? Joseph there? Angels there? The angels were in the fields, right? To the shepherds, they appear and they disappear. So it may, may have been, there may have been angels there. Invisibly, I'm sure there are angels right here, right? But no visible angel. Uh, magi. That's a magi. That's a magi. That's a, that's a magi. You got Joseph. Magi one. Magi two. Magi three. Only one shepherd. I don't like that either because it's the shepherds. That's two or more. And in fact, in Hebrew, two is a dual. Singular dual. It's really three or more. So they got it all wrong. <laughs> Okay, what's the main, what's the main thing here? What's the real, real man of Christmas? It's that the babe in that manger was and is the God man Savior. 
So, in other words, instead of giving us stuff, instead of just giving us stuff, God gave himself in the person of Jesus. He who So that ultimately, what's the ultimate purpose of wrapping up like a dead man? You think about his death, burial, and resurrection, right? He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You think about the, the persons of the Trinity and the plan of salvation. It's a beautiful thing. God the Father is the architect of the plan, and he's the sender. God the Son is the active agent of salvation. He's the sendee. Jesus takes an inferior role. That's what James read from Psalm 2. He didn't consider ontological equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself not of his deity, but of the outward display of his deity in the independent use of his attributes. He didn't use his attributes to lessen the extent of the human condition. He experienced it fully. Father's the architect. Son's the active agent. He's the one who makes the atoning sacrifice and rises again. The Holy Spirit activates, convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, opens our hearts so we can believe. I don't know if you've ever thought of John 3.16 and following it as a Christmas passage, but I do, and plug in that good real meaning and basic theology about the Trinity into, this is a paraphrase of John 3, 16 through 18. God the Father, God so loved the world, we're talking about God the Father. God the Father, as the architect of the plan of salvation, loved the world so much with the result, Hoste introduces result clauses there in the Greek, that he actually sent his unique, monogenes means unique, only one of his kind, son, the visible member of the Trinity who takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity. The God-man, Savior, the Son of God, Son of Man, for the purpose, you got two that's, first his result, second his purpose in the Greek, for the purpose that all of the ones who believe in him, that's what the Greek text says, not whosoever, but all of the ones who believe in him, that includes Zach, Sonia, Tomas, Yanez, uh, Bella Yusuf in Jordan, uh, my man uh, uh, Tutkong in Sudan, all those good people, uh, that all of the ones who believe in him will never perish. That's double negative in the Greek. What did you learn about double negatives in English class? Don't use them because if you, somebody might have woke up this morning and said, I'm not going to church. And then Carol sat down with Ken and said, Big boy, you're going to church. So Ken said, okay, I'm not, not going to go to church. When you say you're not, not going to do something, you do it. So it's confusing. It's ambiguous. But in Greek grammar, double negative is emphatic negation. Okay. So everyone who believes will never not, is not, not going to, meaning they're never, 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 uh, perish, second death like a fire, but have as a present abiding possession everlasting life. Keep in mind, God the Father did not send the Son of the world to judge the world because the world already stood condemned before God, right? But that the world might be saved through him based on his person and his work. SAS stands for what? Substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Everything that could keep you out of heaven, and more importantly, everything I've ever done or ever will do that keep me out of heaven, Jesus Christ died and paid for fully, completely on the cross, and how do I know that he can actually have the power to give everlasting life after you die? Because of his LBSR. I know Jenny knows what this stands for. What does L stand for? Literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. Right. So this is not just somebody thought they saw a spirit of Jesus floating around. This is the body that was room temperature for three days back and supernaturally transformed. 
The one who believes in the Son will never be judged. The one who does not believe stands judged already. Why? Because he did some horrible thing or he's not religious enough? No, because he has not believed. That's the issue. That's the terms. In the name of the unique Son of God, who's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of everlasting life. That's kind of our invitation this week and every week. Uh, most of you are believers. If you know John 3.16, one of the best ways you can make Christ the core of Christmas is share the gospel. Use words when necessary, right? Three things everybody should know from John 3.16. God loves the world. God gave his son to be the savior of the world. And what did he do? S-A-S-L-B-S-R. Substitution atoning sacrifice. Jesus hung on the cross and was judged for our sins. Then he validated the saving virtue of that by his literal bodily supernatural resurrection. And God gives eternal life, everlasting life to everyone in the world who believes. No one's so bad they can't have this. No one's so good they don't need it. So, you know, the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Because Christ died for our sins and paid our debt for us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you become a part and parcel of being uh, in that set through simple faith. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Um, Got to go to the terrace on the cross one more time. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What's he, he's got nothing to give and he offers nothing. He receives it as a sinner, totally unable to save himself. Salvation had to be totally of grace for that to work. And if it worked for him, it might even work for um, your best friend, or your family member, or Paul McCartney. Apparently he's working for Kanye West, and we're hoping that's really real. Okay, So, yeah, let's make sure Christ is the core of our celebration of Christmas this year. Father, we do thank you that you have this incredible, unbelievable, yet you call us to believe it. A gracious plan that retains your holiness and your righteousness, which totally glorifies you, which pleases you to save those who through the redeeming work of Christ receive him through faith for everlasting life. Uh, The plan focuses on Jesus as the sendee, as the active member of the uh, plan of salvation, the Trinity. Fill us with an appropriate level of awe appreciation, humility, joy at thinking of all Jesus is, all he has done, all he is going to do for us and to your glory for all eternity and enable us and motivate us to really put this Christ, our Lord and Savior, at the very core of our celebration of Christmas this year. We pray in his name. Amen.